0: Find something of value. Higher education, community, and particularly how central the humanities
1: is. Welcome to the Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Mahita Ikhani. Take a moment to breathe with me right now. Start by exhaling all the air in your lungs. Now, inhale smooth and steady as though you're pulling a piece of silk through a gold ring to the count of four. At the apex, let your breath rest. Then, exhale again, pulling that silk back through the ring to the count of four. Let your empty lungs pause again for a couple of beats. Now do it again. Inhale two, three, four, pause. Exhale, two, three, four, pause. Did you notice any difference to your mood in the few seconds that passed while we spent some time noticing our breath? When I was 19, I did a scuba diving course. At the time, I lived in Droburg a landlocked city, and therefore, we had to do our qualifying dives in an old quarry that had been filled up with water. They had put some fish in it and sunk into the depths a few odd things, like an old bus, so that there were things that the novice divers could look at while they were practicing. When I waded into the water for my first dive, I had the wrong ratio of weights on my belt. So, as soon as I was in the depths and my feet could no longer touch the silt below, I just started sinking. I panicked, obviously, and my breath suddenly took on a life of its own, jumping and leaping about without any regularity or rhythm. My dive instructor saved me, corrected the weight belt problem, and helped me to calm down. I went on and I completed the qualifying dives. I even swam through the bus, but I never actually scuba dived again after that. If you've ever had a panic attack like I did that day, you'll know how traumatic it is to lose control of your breath. This one process that we so take for granted is at the core of our existence. It seems like I'm stating the obvious, but I want to do that anyway. Breath is life. That lesson was painfully underlined through the early months of the COVID pandemic, as we watched, panicked and terrified, as sick friends, colleagues, family members, and fellow citizens were put on ventilators, needed oxygen, as that nasty, spiky virus tore its way around the globe. COVID took our breath away, for many, forever. Never has the privilege of breathing been more apparent to this generation than in our collective experiences of surviving this pandemic. In the previous episode about ancestors, Dr. Nosipo Gomezulu took us on an existential journey about time, identity, and archives. In this episode, I continue the existential quest in slightly more prosaic terms by pausing to think with and through breathing. As a modality of knowledge. I speak to two scientists who focus on different aspects of breathing. Dr. Elamanga is a medical doctor who explores holistic wellness, integrating both mental and physical health through breathwork practice. Professor Talula Oni has created a brilliant citizen science project that uses running in cities as a way to gather evidence to support clean air policy making. Alongside conversations with these two rather inspiring researchers and scientists, we also have a special feature, extracts from an audio-ethnographic narrative exploration of breath as a strategy for coping with the challenges of pandemic life. Created by none other than my brilliant collaborator on this podcast, Dr. Nosipo ngome In her piece, titled Hold for 60, None, 2 and 7, A Recipe for Disaster Management, first published on the Medical and Health Humanities Proceedings of the 2020 BREATH Symposium, doctor Mgomezulu reflects on how BREATH was a strategy for anchoring her academic and personal life during the chaos and trauma of the pandemic. We include two short extracts from her narrative in this podcast, the rest you can listen to in the links provided in the show notes. Here is the first piece.
0: Hold for 16, hold for none. An abbreviated recipe for disaster management. It's seven o'clock in the morning. You wake up on the edge of the left side of the bed. That's the wrong side of the bed. You try not to remember that another body used to be there. No, no, scratch that. You hit the snooze button. Just, just snooze these thoughts. It's too early and too late to start thinking. Eyes barely open, you scroll through your Google Drive to begin your morning breath work. You will need the following. Ingredients. A body. Ideally, this body should be yours, but if you're borrowing it from another, that will do for now until yours returns to you. Perhaps you'll borrow your mother's. She's been here before. At your age, she'd had three children and gathered herself between televised and private riots. You are not the first to live under precarity. Now gather yourself. Assume the posture of dignity. It is too late to be in a fetal position. Never mind if the limbs are not enough to hold that is heavy and weighing you down. Your two arms will have to do. You'll need a cell phone. A lifeline stretching beyond your studio apartment to the dizzying flurry of the outside world. You will crave connection without the contamination. You, You will need Wi-Fi. The sea into which you will cast your lifeline, fishing for contact. Mind the oil spills and the shipwrecks. It's crazy out there. You will need your bed to steady yourself. There is no terra firma. The floor is lava, so ground yourself. Even if the security guard in your building will ask you to return to your flat when you tiptoe to pick lavender, just barefoot across the communal garden, find your grounding anyway. Method. Step 1. Lay on your back. Step two, place your left hand on your heart and your right hand on your stomach, just above your diaphragm, relax. Step three, deep breath in, release. Deep breath in, release. Step four, hold. Hold your breath for a minute. You are safe. Try not to think. Just feel the breath move out of your lungs. Don't hold on to it. Just just let it go. You are safe. The tingle in your jaw is normal. Allow. Allow the oxygen to move through your body. Relax your lips. Don't purse them attempting to rest your breath back into your body. I see you. Just allow your lungs to expel this air. Allow the power of breath to fill you. Yeah, you're feeling your fingers twitch against your body right now, aren't you? Okay, well, just allow the breath to circulate through you. Quieten your thoughts. Every thought is a breath. Just allow flow. If your eyes begin to twitch, don't fret. Just allow that sliver of light to enter. This dissolving of any blocks. (laughs) Okay, your body is twitching. No, it is not time yet. Don't rush, allow yourself to relax, you are not dying, fill yourself with life force. Step five, deep breath in. <sighs> Step six, hold. Hold your breath for 15 seconds. This, this feels normal. This, this feels normal. Oh. Step seven, okay release. Release your breath completely. Now repeat these steps, one to seven, two more times.
1: Breath is life, and the purpose of life is to be alive, to live. Breath is something our bodies do without conscious instruction from the brain, a bit like our heartbeats and physiological processes like digestion. Unlike our heartbeats and gut processes, however, We can actually control our breath simply by trying, simply by focusing our attention on what the lungs are doing. The breath is a link between body and mind, and breathing with attention is something every single human being can do, if they wish. My next guest, Dr. Elamanga, argues that conscious breathwork is a powerful tool that we can use to improve our physical and mental health.
2: So I'm Dr. Ila Manga. I'm an integrative medical practitioner and the founder of Breathwork Africa.
3: So lovely to be talking with you. I think you're just the perfect person to ask this question.
2: Mm.
3: It's to do with the science of breathing. So, you know, I understand Mm. that, you know, breath is a, a physiological process. And I'm sure there is a lot of scientific and medical and health research that goes into understanding how breath works in our bodies so i wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your journey as a as a medical practitioner and as a doctor so what brought you to the scientific study of breath
2: i in my practice had been identifying the real issue of burnout and uh, trying to understand the the phenomenon of burnout but also in a more holistic perspective because often when we talk about burnout, we see on one hand, we see it from a, a psychological perspective, and then medical doctors or more holistic doctors will speak about it in terms of adrenal fatigue. I realize that mm. when we bring our conscious attention mm. to our unconscious function, mm. we are able to affect powerful changes in our physiology. And the more I started to study breath work, the more I realized that every single aspect of our physiology, every system can be affected and influenced by the breath. So can you tell us more
3: about the science and the physiology of of breath? I mean, I think we all know we have lungs and we breathe in and the air goes into our lungs and then the oxygen is distributed through our body, but Mm. you've hinted at how various systems and functions within the body that we may not realize are linked to breath are in fact linked to breath. Absolutely.
2: And so when I studied breathing at medical school, it was in terms of the respiratory systems seen in isolation and really looking at pathology and approaching breathing from a pathological paradigm and really not appreciating that this is a function that affects every other system in the body. And it is only through my own investigation and study that I started to appreciate this. Mm. The latest studies in the field of neuroscience are illuminating fascinating links and aspects of our neurobiology that are connected to breath. So Dr. Jack Feldman, who's a prominent neuroscientist, has discovered a very interesting part of the respiratory center in the midbrain or the brainstem rather called the pre-Botzinger complex. And this is a specific uh, cluster of what he describes as interneurons that is responsible for activating or initiating the inhale. These neurons will pick up on carbon dioxide levels and the baroreceptors in the rest of the body and will start synchronizing. And once they start synchronizing, it will initiate an inhalation. So this pre botzinger complex is responsible for our natural breathing rhythm. Just above the pre complex, located right above this cluster of neurons, is another area in the respiratory center called the locus ceruleus. Okay. And the locus ceruleus seems to respond to both attention and paced breathing separately. This is really interesting. So as soon as we pay attention to something, this part of the brain lights up. When we start to slow down the breath and regulate the breath, this part of the brain lights up. It's really interesting what would happen if we combine attention with paced breathing. And these are the studies that are being done now to show that when this does happen, it dampens the activity in the limbic system and it wakes up the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobes. Mm. And so there's this whole communication system that is happening in the brain connected to breath. We are also starting to identify other neural pathways connected to the breath. And the most well-known and well-researched pathway is the vagal nerve pathway. Okay. And the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body, it's a cranial nerve. And most of the signals are afferent nerve signals, so which means that it sends signals from the body to the brain. Okay. So 80% of those fibers are constantly feeding back information from the body to the brain. And so when we slow down the breath, when we uh, change the rhythm and pace of the breath, these signals are traveling via the vagus nerve to the brain. We also have the olfactory nerve pathway. So when we breathe through the nose, you know, it also will impact the parts of the brain that start to wake up. So, you know, breathing in different ways, Mm. start to wake up different parts of the brain. Mm. And so we're starting to see now that there's certain practices that will wake up the limbic brain that allows us access to the limbic system and subconscious memories uh, will increase the chemical DMT, which is often what we see is raised as we are about to die. Hmm. So, this is so fascinating. That here, with the simple unconscious function, through breathing in certain ways, there are 14 parameters of the breath that we can change and play around with, like musical notes, Mm. rhythm, pace, how much we hold on the inhale, how much we hold on the exhale, you know, how we slow it down, how much volume we use of our lungs. All of these parameters will influence what we experience physically, emotionally, the subconscious states we are able to access. Hmm.
3: I mean, it's so interesting and it, it makes sense that there is a scientific basis and scientific evidence for understanding the links between the functions of breathing and the different ways of controlling breath and how different parts of the body and brain and nervous system will respond. Are there other ailments or illnesses that we have
2: evidence for how breath can help us to heal? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and what you're speaking to, Kimita, is the fact that breath is a language. So every thought that we think, every emotion that we feel, every posture that we hold has a corresponding breathing pattern. And so when we can breathe a certain way, we can change immediately how we think and how we feel. But we're also starting to understand now, going back to your previous question around how breath is related to every system, how we can influence various ailments by working with the breath. So for example, we know that when we regulate our breathing, and we engage the main breathing muscle, which is the diaphragm, and we understand the anatomy of the diaphragm and the fact that the posterior attachment of the diaphragm is at the lumbar spine, we realize its profound impact and importance in maintaining and stabilizing our posture for example. Mm. So our postural health and back pain, for example, can be influenced by breathing more what well, we talk about functional breathing. Mm. Okay, So how we should be breathing in our everyday lives, mm. right? We also know that when we engage the diaphragm, we are influencing our digestive system. So, so the diaphragm works like a pump. And if we are breathing the way we should be with every breath, as the diaphragm flattens and moves back to its dome shape, it is massaging all the organs of the abdomen. So the spleen, the stomach, the liver, uh, the gallbladder, the intestines are all getting a massage with every breath that we take. The heart is being pulled down with every breath that we take With every inhale, as the diaphragm flattens, it's drawing the heart down. And as the diaphragm moves back up into its dome shape, the heart moves back into its resting state because of the attachment of the diaphragm to the pericardial covering around the heart. So it's actually profound to watch a functional MRI and to see how every system is influenced. It's like a just a beautiful kind of rhythm. And so when we really study a breath in depth, we realize that it's far more than the respiratory system. Mm. When we breathe, the whole body breathes. Mm. You know, one of our favorite parts of the training is to show our students the dissection of the fascia. And the fascia is the connective tissue that connects every part of the body to everything. And they're organized in specific lines. And we see in that dissection that the fascial lines all meet at the diaphragm. So every time we breathe, there's a connection from the top of the head to the soles of the feet. Mm. Hmm. And so it impacts on lymphatic flow. Mm. It impacts on the immune system. It impacts on the digestive system. It Mm. impacts on our neurological system. You know, there isn't a system in the body that cannot be and is not influenced by conscious Mm. breathing. And in terms of breath
3: as a, a tool for healing or as a kind of breath as a form of medicine in itself, perhaps you could comment on, you know, I think also the links between mental well-being and physical well-being like a a lot of us will experience the mental stresses of everyday life like work stress or family stress or interpersonal conflict or whatever and we we see those as kind of separate from our physical well-being yet you know breath practices can help us cope with those stresses and anxieties but there's also a link right between physical illness and mental state of mind. And I wonder if you want to comment a bit on the ways in which breath kind of connects those two domains of illness Mm. and well-being and healing.
2: Mm. We actually cannot separate the two. Mm. And even the fact that we're still, you know, talking about mental well-being, physical well-being as separate terms, Mm. I think needs to shift, you know, and COVID has certainly brought this more to awareness. And in studying long COVID, for example, or people who experience acute COVID, we realized that the core aspect of this was inflammation. So inflammation was the core aspect of this. And uh, previously, it was thought that the brain was immune from the inflammatory processes that were happening in the body. But we realized that they're actually not. This was illuminated by studies that were done around brain tissue and a particular cell that was discovered in the brain called the microglia and the microglia are really the immune system's ambassador in the brain so when there's inflammation in the physical body it is mirrored by inflammation in the brain through the activity of the microglia so when microglia are healthy they support neurogenesis So what that means is that neurons will start to knit together. But when there's runaway inflammation, these microglia can act as scavengers, or rather they start to eat up brain tissue almost. And that can severely impact our emotional state. And so brain fog and a lot of the emotional symptoms that we are seeing post-COVID can be attributed to the activity of microglia, which is also modulated by the vagus nerve that I was talking about. So it seems like the vagus nerve is key in connecting uh, what is happening on a physical level and what we are experiencing on a mental and emotional level.
3: So in what ways can we practically use breath to improve our well-being or to address different forms of ill health that we may be experiencing. I know Mm. that you're an expert in this and you have multiple resources that you make available on your website and that you share during the many different workshops and events that you offer people. But perhaps you could give Mm. us a little insight into how breath can be deployed practically as a tool
2: for helping us Mm. feel better when we are not feeling well. So I think the first thing is to learn about it to acknowledge the profound impact it has and to start developing a relationship with your breath, to notice it in moments. What is happening to the breath when I'm feeling anxious? What is happening to my breath when I'm concentrating on something? We all suffer from email apnea. As we're scrolling on our phones and typing an email, we tend to hold the breath. And so what happens is that we are developing dysfunctional breathing habits by virtue of the way that we're living. Our modern lives, our technologically-based lives, the clothes that we wear, the stresses that we're dealing with every day are pushing us towards dysfunctional breathing pattern, which in turn is feeding stress and anxiety. So just by the way that we are breathing, we are experiencing a constant low-grade state of anxiety. This is becoming our baseline. And so when we bring awareness to the breath, and we start to retrain our breath, then we can lower the baseline back to a more natural state. And so from here, we can reach into the intensity of everyday life, but we know how to decompress. So breath awareness is number one. And there's three pillars of functional breathing. The first is in our everyday lives, 95% of the time, we should be breathing through the nose, okay? And this is really important because the nose is designed for us to breathe. The whole architecture of the nose and the architecture of the respiratory system is designed that we are making the best of of what nasal breathing brings us, and there's a whole rich science to that. And, you know, with COVID and mask-wearing, Uh, many people have developed a habit of mouth breathing, which is exacerbating stress and anxiety. So that's Mm. the first pillar. Mm. The second pillar is to retrain the diaphragm, okay? And understand how that works and training that diaphragm, which involves us to move the body in more natural ways. So taking care of the posture so that our diaphragm can work optimally. So when we nasal breathing and using the diaphragm, then we naturally will start breathing more slowly at rest. So we want to bring our resting respiratory rate down, Mm. which will then reflect a state of calm focus. This is what we mean when we talk about functional breathing. Mm. And then there are specific breathing practices that are really helpful. So breathing practices that can help us upregulate to kind of energize the system, move more towards a healthy energy state, There are specific practices that can help to down-regulate the system, so feel more calm, more relaxed, and there are practices that are more balancing, okay, Mm -hmm. that will balance the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system so that we're experiencing a state of calm focus that we want to experience in our everyday lives. So Mm -hmm. whether that's studying, learning, in a meeting, whatever that is, we want to be in a state of calm focus, so that we can really optimize our brain function. So, Mm. you know, we can learn three techniques that will be a mini toolkit that can support us in our everyday lives. And so breath is a creative force in itself. It is inspiration. (laughs) And while we have these tools and these techniques, it really is all to serve the experience of life as art life as Mm. a creative experience, a Mm. co-creative experience, Mm. you know, so when we start to engage with and come alive to what is naturally supporting our lives, we start becoming co-creators of our lives. Mm. We start to take responsibility for in a beautiful way. We start to uh, uh, appreciate this life force and co-create a life that we wish to live and that Mm. we deserve to live yeah and it's all here
3: you know we all deserve to live beautiful lives happy lives and breath is a very accessible tool for each of us to do so there isn't a living human on the planet who does not breathe right so it's perhaps the most democratic of all Tools. (laughs)
2: Yeah, thank you for saying that because it really is, you Mm. you know, and this is why I feel so passionately Mm. about sharing breath because it's free and accessible to Mm. every human being. Mm. And especially in a country like ours that Mm. is the most unequal in the world, that Mm. is so under resourced, especially in terms of health, Mm. here is a tool that we can all have access to. Mm. And, you know, it gives us a sense of agency. Yeah in terms yeah. of our own health which is it's crucial
0: congratulations only 15 hours 7 seconds to go what do you need to do okay well gather yourself make your bed this is a gift to your future self check your diary check your emails oh god Okay, close your emails, scroll through Instagram instead. Now, take your vitamins. Grab that vitamin C, that zinc, that D3, that probiotic, that multivitamin, that milk thistle, that antidepressant, that anti anxiety, that super full pill, that B12. Where did you put mshonyan? Take that too. Make a workout shake. Workout. You will need the following ingredients, a body. Arundhati Roy says the pandemic is a portal, so you try pay attention to your attention. If your body is an unsafe ship, you may substitute it for a man's body. You will need a sports bra. The pandemic is the end of days. At least, that's what your mother reminds you when she tells you to go and get right with God. Perhaps this is the inevitable reckoning, preparing us for the big awakening. You'll need running shorts. Stop being sarcastic. Come on, grab your running shorts. Maybe the pandemic is an elaborate conspiracy to conceal the lizard alien takeover. Huh. You'll need socks. Okay, go grab your socks. Honestly, the pandemic is just an opportunity for more research about the killability of black bodies. Cue the think pieces about why African streets aren't strewn with dead bodies. This you read from a reputable international media house. You will need running shoes. Maybe the pandemic is a catalyst for the inevitable race war. Again? Didn't we have one of those already? You'll need a cell phone. Your Uber driver will regale you with the tales of the pandemic as a 5G conspiracy. (laughs) Grab your cell phone anyway. You'll need your keys. Your earphones, a running pouch. The pandemic is a slouch towards Bethlehem. Something about a centre that won't hold. But the centre has never held. So maybe more a chairbed than Yates? You'll need a mask. The pandemic is collective ambiguous loss. You are not alone. Certainty was always an illusion. You will need your pepper spray. Curate your loneliness. Method. Step one. Warm up. Place your headphones and cell phone and keys into your running pouch. Conceal all underneath a loose t-shirt. Now hook your pepper spray into your running pouch. Consider a water bottle. Consider the feasibility of a water bottle and your ability to reach for the pepper spray. Okay, Mm -mm. decide against the water bottle. Step two, switch from Wi-Fi to cell phone data. Check your Namola app. Turn on your night running app. Cue a podcast. Step three, stretch. Put on a mask, lock your door, walk downstairs. Step four, brace yourself. Inhale for two steps, exhale for three steps. Do not hold your breath. It's time to get running. Step five. You're running. You're outside and you're running. This is good. Do not get startled by the hooting. Run. Never mind the exhaust fumes. Run. Turn into a leafy avenue. Run. Step six. Send piercing dead stares and tut audibly as you pass a group of women in yoga pants standing in the middle of the road Chatting with no masks on. Your mask is making it hard to inhale through your mouth. Okay, fine. Try inhaling for two steps, exhaling for three steps. Focus on breathing through your nose. Fill your body with air. God, this isn't working. You stop to take off your mask at the corner. Step seven do not stare when you see Umama in a uniform emerge from behind high walls with a blonde baby wriggling at her side continue running. Inhale through the nose. Exhale for two steps. Exhale for three steps. Do not hold your breath. Step eight. When Obaba Otize, walking a comical combination of what is that a Maltese poodle and a pedigree Great Dane, stops to greet his friend with ugh, great an Alsatian across the road, stop to check if they see you before running past them. Do not get chased by dogs. Inhale for two steps, exhale for two steps. The American in ear is talking about black lives. Step nine. When the private security car slows down to unhelpfully remind you, Gijima my size. Don't curse, don't cry. Your legs are heavy, but pick up your pace and get past the gupta compound. Promise yourself that you will spray the next catcaller. no. You can't shut your credentials. That won't save you. Step 10. Reach for your phone. Pretend to take a photo until they drive away. No, you're not going to report them when you get home. Do not recall the mugging in December. Okay, okay, you've done enough. Turn around now at the zoo. Step 11. Enjoy spring's first unfurling of buds. You'll be followed home by a menacing man. You will tell him that he is frightening you. You'll be followed anyway. He will tell you that your ass looks so good as he comes closer. Do not regret wearing these pants. Do not cover your butt. Do not start crying. Your tears don't have that kind of magic, black girl. Focus. Sprint to the nearest security guard in a Wendy house. Catch your breath when you encounter an old woman. Forget social distancing. Meet her pace. Holding your breath, that won't do. Breathe. Breathe. Inhale for two steps, exhale for three steps. Step 12, get home, drink water, stretch, do not go running alone again.
1: Another aspect in which breath is crucial in our well-being is the role that it plays in exercise but as the second extract we just played from Dr. Nosipo Mkomezulu's piece shows, and as we explore in more detail with my next guest, Professor Tallulah Oni, breathing during exercise is about much more than simply individual physical health.
4: I am Tallulah Oni. I am a public health physician and urban epidemiologist. I am director of a research programme at the University of Cambridge MRC Epidemiology Unit that focuses on diet and physical activity research and I can tell you a little bit more about that. And I'm also an extraordinary professor at Innovation Africa under the Department of Architecture at the University of Pretoria in South Africa
3: so lovely to have someone with such expertise and so many wonderful connections with us on the podcast so we're here together to talk about your really exciting and innovative research project about air pollution and urban well-being in african cities so we thought perhaps we should start with a conversation about what the links are between air pollution and human health I think you're really mm-hmm. well positioned to explain what the kind of physiological links are between the air that we breathe and our our bodies and their well-being
4: Mm Hmm. Thanks, Mahita. Well, luckily, we know intuitively that we need air to breathe. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things that is very simple to explain in terms of why air is important. But what often is less clear is why the quality of air is important. I'll delve delve a little bit into that. But we know, for example, that over ninety five percent of the world of people across the world breathe air that doesn't meet the standards of the world health organization why is it such a big thing well we know that the pollutants in the air impact our health in very different ways they impact our lung health which is perhaps the most intuitive Mm. right it increases the risk of conditions like asthma and chronic lung disease and it's certainly plays a key role in the rise that we're seeing in asthma of really all ages, globally, mm. but also less well-known is its impact on other organs. So for example, because the particulate, and particularly the smaller particulate matter can get into the small vessels, blood vessels in our bodies, it significantly increases the risk of heart attacks wow. and of strokes. Hmm. Um, it increases the risk of not just asthma, but pneumonia, particularly in children under five. Mm. And so when we think about air pollution, it's important that we're not just thinking about, about lung health, which is the most intuitive, which is really critical, but also the broader impact. It also impacts our brain health. So it's significantly associated with cognitive decline in elderly people and impairs cognitive development in children. So, for example, it's been associated with decreases in performance IQ in children. And it also exacerbates inequality, because if I take the example of cognitive development, there's a lot of research that shows that it particularly affects children from lower socioeconomic status households even more Mm -hmm. in terms of the impact on the performance IQ you than children in general so so you can see from the lungs to the heart to the Mm. brain it has a significant impact on health and really it's not okay that we accept Mm. this level of air quality
3: and it really seems strange that even though it seems like there's all the scientific evidence to back up the the need for clean air and our bodies to Mm. function well yet we seem to have become habituated to breathing Mm really Mm -hmm. polluted air especially in in Mm. our cities Mm. Mm.
4: i think a significant part of it is that we we often most of the time can't see it Mm. right firstly and that secondly it can impact health in a delayed manner right? right so if you think about the way that it increases the risk of heart attacks it's not like drinking polluted water where tomorrow you have diarrhea right Mm. so Mm. there's certain things that impact the ways that we've evolved and our biases right in terms of how we perceive emergencies firstly we don't see it secondly its impact is delayed and thirdly it can be disconnected in silos right so for example the sectors whose activities influence air quality the greatest are rather divorced from the healthcare sector, where you would see increased admissions in asthma mm-hmm. and children, for example. All so right. these are different people. So we can separate these things and you can really see the power of bringing things together when we can show that spikes in air pollution impacts on health. Actually, in the short term, in this way, it lends a very powerful argument to action. But in our day to day, these things are siloed. Right. Or when we can see it, right? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. in cities, you have this brown haze. Mm. And people think, oh my goodness, we have to do something about it. The air was bad before that, right? But we don't perceive the emergency when we can't see it.
3: Right. So I think, I mean, I know you're involved in multiple research projects, but there's one in specific that you're leading on and that I think you devised yourself about how to gather evidence that shows the link right between the kind of what rob nixon would call the slow violence of air pollution and its impact mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so can you tell us more i know you're a big runner yourself you you're yeah. very good at running <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you've married running with a project that seeks to collect evidence to show mm-hmm. the impact of air pollution mm-hmm. on well-being mm-hmm. in certain communities mm-hmm. so can you tell us more about this really innovative project where you're getting runners to collect data about
4: application, yeah, yeah. It starts you know, from my running experience. I you know i run in public space when i travel i travel a fair bit and i started noticing that the experience of running in different cities varied in terms of how easy it was to run and the different health risks and different climate risks that one encountered between cities but also within cities right so i could you know i could tell i could go to a city that I didn't know at all. And you could be running through, and you can tell when you have got to, a, you get to a well-off area without knowing the area, because it's just suddenly the air feels different, there's a bit of shade, there's a bit more green, there's a fewer holes in the road, and it's just the running experience differs. So I started thinking, well, how can we better understand, because public space is exactly that, it's public, right? And mm. it's something that should be developed in our collective interest. Physical activity, I mean, running is just what I use because is my entry point, and it's just really fast walking, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the health behavior that we really want to encourage, right? Because what's happening alongside this air pollution in many of our cities across our continent is that we're seeing a rise in non-communicable diseases like obesity, like diabetes, like high blood pressure. And to really tackle this, to prevent these, we want people to be more physically active, right? We want people to eat better. We want people to be more physically active. But it's one thing to say that, mm. right? What we need to do, in addition to educating people about the need to be physically active, is we need to make the health healthy choice, the easy choice. Mm. We need to create public spaces that are healthy, that people can safely walk and cycle and run in. Mm. So I started asking, well, what do we know about air pollution as one of the critical health risks that we face? Because by the way, we did a previous study in Lagos, in Nigeria, and Yaoundé, in Cameroon, and we were looking at the ways that people appropriate public space for physical activity. Mm. And through that, the health risks that they encountered that came through were air pollution, safety and injury. So we mm. Focus on air pollution to say, well, how can we understand how air quality varies within and between cities? Mm. And one of the things that we very quickly encountered was that it's not being sufficiently measured, mm. right? So, you have large cities, and if you look at what is the quality of air in Cape Town today, well, we have a number of sensors in parts of the city, but it by no means gives a sufficiently good enough sense of what are different parts of the city breathing. So, the first thing we realize is the need for more decentralized and localised air quality monitoring, Mm. right? The second thing we realised there was a need for was to connect this air quality to health, right? Because health is something that, you know, animates us. We know (laughs) we all want to be healthy. And running is something that we associate, we know is a healthy behaviour that we want to promote. And that is something that should be possible in public space. It shouldn't be, oh, you need to run more, join a gym. Well, that's Mm. not really sound and <laughs> rational for most people mm-hmm. so so we wanted to connect it to health right and highlight the fact that we didn't sufficiently have enough data that was integrating a quality data to, and health data so that was why the running and then the third thing that we wanted to do was to show the potential and the power of young people to be part of the solution, right? So not just as beneficiaries, but being part of this participatory process of both measuring and decision making in cities for healthy and climate resilient public spaces. Mm. And by the way, I bring those things, two things together: health and climate resilience, because we're talking about air pollution, it's Absolutely. the lowest hanging fruit, right? Mm. Most most air pollutants are greenhouse gases. Mm. Air pollution has a significant of health. Tackling air pollution could significantly improve health in quite a short space of time. I'm Mm. going a little bit over the place, mate. I'm going to take you back and give you one quick example. There was a study that was done in the US at the start of the pandemic when we had the most extreme lockdown, and they found that the states in the US that dropped their air pollution the highest because of the lockdowns significantly reduced their heart attacks over Mm. a four-month period.
3: Interesting.
4: Right. So, what we're talking about with air pollution is not just, oh, in the future, it'll improve our health. Mm. Oh, in the future, it will help with climate action. It's now, Mm. right? So, this is the urgency. So, the Citizens for Clean Air project is we start off on what you're talking about. We're running it in three cities across the continent. We're running it in Cape Town in South Africa, in Lagos in Nigeria, and in Accra in Ghana. What are we doing? (laughs) We are working with young people. Age 18 to 35. And by the way, Mahita, I don't like the word young people in the African context because it's actually the majority demographic, Mm -hmm. right? When we talk about young people, it almost seems like a niche group what is young people when seventy mm. percent of people are under thirty-five?
3: Right, exactly. It's the majority. Are about mm.
4: <laughs> if you're not dealing with young people, then who are you dealing? <laughs> <laughs> Good so, point. But anyway, let's just <laughs> let's just call them young people because we don't have the word for it. We have a public recruitment, and we did this in Cape Town in July. We did this in Accra in August, and we're doing this in Lagos in September. We recruit seven to ten young people who are passionate about health, passionate about environmental justice, passionate about climate, and then we train them over two days of workshop on advocacy, on understanding this connection between air quality, public space, health, and climate, Mm -hmm. on approaches to measure. They then design their own running routes, right? So they're also runners of all sorts. (laughs) They design their own running routes across each city. So, for example, in Cape Town, we had eight different running routes, right, across the city that was designed by the run leaders. Mm -hmm. On the same day, they run through the city along their running routes, carrying an air quality sensor, just a tiny air quality sensor that maps the air quality along their route, Mm -hmm. and an app that we've developed and what that app does is it enables them to capture geolocated data that is audio data photographic data video data text data on the quality of their built environment as they are encountering during the run Mm -hmm. so things that they encounter that they see is sources of good air or sources of bad air right. or health risks they encounter or health benefits they encounter. So that could be, I run through a park and that's a lovely health benefit because it's it's green and it's shaded and it's a source of clean air because we know trees also help to improve the quality of our air. It could be a hole in the road that poses a health risk. Hmm. It could be a construction site that is seized as a source of air pollution. So what that does is really animate and illustrate the number data that they're collecting from their sensors that they're also carrying. So you can see it as a kind of scan of the city in one moment in time. And then we are bringing those faces together spatially, so on a map to say, mm-hmm. okay, across each of these different routes, this is the quality of the air. These are the experiences of the runners um, mm-hmm. whilst running through there. And then we bring the run leaders back together in a second workshop, which is happening in October in those three cities to then say, what did we find? What was Mm. your experience on your run? How was that similar or different to other runners in your city? Mm. And they're going to use that evidence that they generated, those data stories that they generated, to design advocacy messages that they will be implementing in November.
3: So in each city, the different run leaders will kind of, between them, cover significant parts of the entire city. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then the little devices that they carry to measure the pollution along the route that they run what does the device actually like measure, measure?
4: they're different air pollutants right that you can measure mm-hmm. the ones that we focus on because we have the strongest evidence in terms of both their impacts on health and their climate warming impact are the particulate matter right mm-hmm. so that's two types of particular matter but specifically the particular matter 2.5 that we focus on particular matter 10 so those are just two different sizes mm-hmm. of particulate matter. And then the third is the NO2, so nitrous oxide. That's a pollutant that we often see from cars and mm-hmm. from vehicles. So it tells us a little bit about the source of it. Mm-hmm. So we're particularly interested in those aspects of the pollutants that the sensor captures.
3: Right. So you bring together this kind of quantitative, kind of hard mm-hmm. data with the mm-hmm. the more experiential and kind of mm-hmm. subjective experiences mm-hmm. of the runners. And I think that might yeah. be quite a really...
4: An yeah. interesting conversation
3: yeah. between those two kinds of data, for sure.
4: Exactly, exactly. And I'm quantitatively trained, but with what I call the tyranny of the quantitative, mm. right? So I could say this because, I'm, because we often dismiss objective data. And then there's the subjective, mm-hmm. which even if the objective quantitative data says one thing, we can't dismiss the experience right because that mm. is what animates people that's what drives people right yeah. so we have to bring those data together and it's not one in service of the other but actually of course there's a complementarity absolutely that it helps yeah. to get the message across and it helps to inform action
3: yeah as a as a qualitative you know researcher myself I couldn't agree with you more but then there is the yeah. power of the the quantitative right and I think especially exactly. makers respond to that hmm. right if, exactly if show them like a graph that says yeah. look how this area of your city is more polluted than that area now yeah. do something about it yeah exactly i sense a great optimism in just the way that you think and the way that you talk about your research and how do you think this research could impact on policy making in african cities i mean We do have, in different ways, with different Mm. reasons, in all of the different contexts on the continent, Mm. right, different Mm. levels of political will, sometimes absent, sometimes present. What do you think it would take for the politicians and policymakers who run our cities to respond positively? to make the spaces more livable, more walkable, more Mm. runnable,
4: healthier. You're absolutely right that I'm optimistic. I'm not just optimistic, I'm hopeful, Mm. right? There's three reasons why. The first is that, you know, in the cities that we focus on, you know, on the African continent, there's a lot of change happening, right? And in that change is, it can be seen as a challenge and it often is a challenge, but that's where possibility lies. If you try changing something where nothing is moving, (laughs) Mm. right? so much more challenging. So I'm actually really optimistic that our cities are growing, our cities are evolving, and therein lies an opportunity to to think differently about a more people-centred approach. That's the first thing. The second reason I'm optimistic is the youth, right? You know, you can't help but be optimistic when you interact a lot with young people because you see Mm. an energy and you see this kind of willingness to be part of the solution. Yes, you see a lot of frustration in being marginalized, but you see a kind of, there's just so much potential, and we just need to harness that in a more mainstream way, not in a tokenistic way, but to say, how can you actually bring that in? And I think mm. we just have that incredible resource. And then the third reason why I'm optimistic is actually relates to policy actors. I think we're all very quick to, and to some sense based, based on experience, talk about all the challenges with government and the politicians mm. and policy actors, which is true and what is also true is that within that there are individuals who are incredibly innovative and really wanting to push the boat out a little bit or quite a lot and see the potential around them. And the more you look for these people working in government, the more I find them, right? It's important that we don't have this singular narrative of yes. we have to convince government. Actually, there's people in government that don't need convincing, what they need is support, right? Mm. And so, from my perspective as an academic, I see you have this privilege of nobody's voting for me I don't have a mandate to deliver on you know it's difficult they have difficult trade-offs and things to deal with what my privilege and I can bring to it is say okay I can look at what what are the issues here how can I bring the methodology the expertise that I bring with my research you know you've just made this commitment to say you want to tackle air pollution how can I support that actually Mm. and actually here's what you already have Here's the thing, I have the luxury of being able to take a step back and when you do that you can see certain things, you can see the siloing of of data and you can help bring that together to say, okay, let's actually have a look at, you know, would it be helpful for you if I can bring the health and environmental data together to Mm. help more strongly make that argument you know, that is a luxury I have. Would it be helpful if I can explore ways of participatory mm. governance and look at what are the best ways that we can engage? If I can have a platform to say, which is the idea behind this citizen science work and the app to say, if we have a platform that we can use to harness, understand the lived environments that your majority demographic are experiencing, mm would that help you kind of in real time or as close to real time as possible respond to and anticipate health and climate risks that are there today, but also that you anticipate in next season. So those are the reasons why I'm hopeful. And I see, mm. so say, for example, there are, I think 11 in cities across the continent, including in South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Senegal, Sierra Leone, etc. cetera, several countries across the continent that have made a commitment led by the sea. 40 organization um, this mayoral initiative have made a commitment to tackle air pollution in their cities right and so mm. if you look at that so the, the approach that we're taking in the three cities they are working at for example lagos and accra are two of the cities that have made that commitment how we're engaging with the government in that respect to say you've made this commitment this is part of what you say you want to do mm. here's what the young people are doing here's what we can do how can we actually generate contextually relevant Data stories and evidence that can support what mm. you have set out to do. Mm. Rather than just watch you do something and then let's critique how yeah. well or terribly yeah. you're doing it, which let's face it sometimes as academics we do have a penchant for and particularly public health we do Mm. preach (laughs) we like to kind of tell everyone what they're doing wrong it's like well you know (laughs) be part of the solution as well there is that uh, there is that opportunity
3: I think you make a really strong argument for how academic research can contribute in very productive and hopeful ways to the work of those who we elect and you know pay our taxes to to implement Mm. for the greater good of every So that's a really kind of hopeful and I think very encouraging reminder of Mm -hmm. one of the key roles of academic research, right?
4: And it serves both purposes. You're generating research that is impactful, which is what we all say we want to do, Mm -hmm. right? And the policy actors have the kind of evidence-informed policy that they would ideally like to have. So for example, in this project, well, the last thing I didn't mention is that. The reason why they're implementing it in November, the advocacy campaign that is Mm evidence-informed, is because that's when COP27 is happening in Africa, it's happening in Egypt. Mm. And so what we're wanting to do is just draw attention to air pollution as an important action lever point
5: right Mm. for health
4: and climate change. We're going to be having an an activation in Egypt as well as part of this project, right? We're going to have sessions and exhibits and actually hopefully (laughs) we haven't sorted out yet, but actually a run with young people, not just from the cities that we're involved in, not just from African youth from all over the world. Mm. And I think this is a really exciting example of Africa-led global action. Mm. Africa-led youth-led global action, because if we're the ones rapidly urbanizing the farm, We're the continent with the youngest population. Any innovation that's happening globally should be coming from here, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a great example of, at a COP27 event, that isn't on our continent, we want to showcase the power and the potential and really already what the youth are doing in this space, kind of redefining science and Mm -hmm. redefining citizenry, which is Mm -hmm. kind of a citizen science component, Mm -hmm. and really leading globally in how we can integrate this kind of place, health in the center of climate action, Mm. demonstrated through action on air pollution.
3: Yeah, it's so inspiring. You've given a whole new set of perspectives on what a simple run can mean in so Mm -hmm. many multiple ways, right? For physical health, for climate health, Mm -hmm. for city health, for community connection. So it really is in so many ways an inspiring project.
1: Time to read the room. Here's a recommendation from Dr. Ella Manga.
2: I'm learning the most about life through nature right now. So I'm really inspired by the natural laws that we see playing out in nature and how we can align with them. You know, so I'm fascinated by fractals that we see in nature and the sacred geometry that is reflected within our physical bodies. So right now I'm reading several books, Sweet Sweetgrass. Mm. I am reading The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abraham. So that is really looking at language and how language has separated us from the sensory experience of life, which you know also speaks to our relationship with breath.
1: I recommend Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. This is a journalistic exploration of ultra-marathon running, taking in a whole variety of perspectives of people who run, but of particular interest is the story told of a community of indigenous Mexicans, the Tarahumara, who are the best distance runners in the world. In 1993, one of them, at the age of 57, came first in a prestigious 100-mile race wearing sandals. This book is about elite ultra marathon runners, yes, to an extent, but more poignantly, it's a book about human physiology and how every single one of us was evolved to run. The human body is perfectly evolved to run long distances. Speed is not the issue, speed is not important. Distance is something that we can do. So even for people who don't run, don't like to run, don't want to run, this book is kind of inspiring because it really instills a certain respect for the bodies that we've evolved and which carry us through life. And for those who do not like the idea of going for a run, it may at the very least encourage a lovely walk around your neighborhood, taking in the sights, and perhaps while you're at it, checking the air quality of your neighborhood. hope this podcast has offered some food for thought about what breathing means for our individual and collective health, and also how breathing can provide a route for innovative citizen science-driven research and also critical cultural theory. We'll include links to the project on our show notes, so please explore them further if you're interested. And finally, before you go, let's take one more breath together. Inhale, two, three, four. Hold. One, two. Exhale. Two, three, four. This episode of The Academic Citizen was produced by me, Mahita Ikani, with assistance from Taryn McKay. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Elamanga and Professor Tallulah Oni. So much appreciation to Dr. Nosipo Mkomezulu for permission to reproduce parts of her audio essay, Hold for 60, None, 2 and 7, A Recipe for Disaster Management. This episode was edited and sound designed by Victoria De La Harpe, with marketing and communications by Fumani Mabohwane. The Academic Citizen is a project of the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University and funded by the South African National Research Foundation.
5: The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice. We welcome your feedback, opinions and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at citizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org.